As a pastor, I've always been fascinated by the convergence of faith and culture. In fact, I've always considered myself a student of how faith and culture come together, how they, they impact one another, how they're connected, how historically there have been times where the church aligns with culture and other times where the church pushes back against it. The reality is that the church cannot exist outside of culture. And as much as some cultures might try to ignore or to even silence the church, faith and expressions of faith of, of all kinds are deeply embedded in the human experience. I remember having a conversation with a, a friend in Malawi who, who was trying to wrap his mind around the, Amer the American ideal of the separation of church and state. We talked a little bit about the Constitution and about the debates around what's protected in the First Amendment. But for him, it just didn't add up. In his culture, in his experience, the two couldn't be separated from one another. Churches built schools, and then the government supplied the teachers. Churches built hospitals, and then the government paid the doctors. So this morning we're, we're continuing in our series on engaging uncomfortable conversations, but by talking about a topic, diving into a topic that makes most of us cringe, especially when it's talked about in the church, politics. And, and I fully understand why many of us react the way we do when politics and the church hit heads against one another. I can't tell you how many times I hear a politician say something about the church or, or about scripture that just makes me want to scream. And on more than one occasion, I've grieved a pastor or a church leader of some kind saying or writing something that was overtly partisan that comes at the expense of furthering the gospel. So, so we get riled up about faith and politics because they have a tangible impact on our lives. And, and they're the two spaces where we are most likely to express or stand up for what we claim to believe. Now, at its most basic definition, the, the word politics come, comes from the, word, uh, the Greek word polis, which means city. And, and there's this eight-volume work that Aristotle wrote called Politica. And really, that's where we get the idea of politics. And in these eight volumes, they talk about affairs of the city. So when we talk about politics, we're talking about affairs of the city. Last week, we talked about a passage out of Jeremiah where, where God's people are called to seek the shalom, the complete well-being, peace, and prosperity of the city that God led them to, Babylon, of the place that they were taken into exile, to the city so as difficult and uncomfortable conversations around politics might be, if we're going to seek shalom where we live, we have to be involved in the affairs of our city, the affairs of our, our state and our country. We can't sit idly by and not engage. As we head toward the home stretch of this election season, I want to invite us to think about how exactly we do that. How do we engage American politics as followers of Jesus Christ? 
And again, I'm, I'm not talking just about voting, though the voting is important. And I know some of you already have mailed in your ballots, it, but it's more than just about voting. Engaging is more than just voting. How do we have productive conversations with people who, who stand on the other side of the aisle? Why is it important for us to have those conversations in the first place? And, and what might we actually learn from one another? And what do those conversations have at all to do with what it means to follow Jesus? So in our first passage this morning, Matthew writes that Jesus begins his public ministry, initiates his public ministry by preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, that concept, that kingdom concept was something that he came back to often. It was relatable language for the people of his day, and it communicated that there was something better, something more permanent than what they were experiencing, something different than the other kingdom that they were experiencing. But, but this kingdom was, was also something that confused his followers. So he came back to it over and over and over again. Teaching parables that, that said things like, the kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure. The, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven, it's, it's like a merchant searching for a pearl. Like leaven in bread. Like a sprouting seed. Like a fishing net. And so he starts his ministry saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he teaches about what that kingdom looks like. But he also says this word, repent, which, which literally means turn and run toward the coming kingdom. Turn and run toward the kingdom. From the beginning, Jesus was about initiating this kingdom and inviting people to follow him and to be a part of initiating this kingdom. Our, our second scripture this morning, it comes from the, the third chapter of Philippians, uh, written to a people who where we're actively trying to figure out what it looks like to, to seek that heavenly kingdom. Paul writes that there, there are two ways to live. One way that's according to the flesh, and that way was, was considered worldly, and then another way that was shaped by the kingdom that Jesus came to initiate. He, he talks about his former life. And in that former life, he had money, he had power, he had influence. You, you name it, he had it. And he, he says... Look, I consider all of that rubbish. In fact, he actually uses stronger language than that. Stronger language than rubbish. Compared to knowing Christ and knowing the power of his resurrection, everything else was trash. That's what he writes. Then starting at Philippians chapter 3, verse 15, he writes this. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. 
But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the beginning of the, the fifth century, uh, we, we read about a fascinating time for the church and a fascinating time for the Roman Empire. About 70 years before the turn of the century, in 330 AD, Constantinople was established as the, the capital city. And, and Christianity had evolved from being a, a growing movement that, that often faced persecution to this kind of established and widely accepted religion. And then, in 410, it all came to a screeching halt. Rome was conquered for the first time in 800 years. And many blamed Christianity for its downfall. Christians, they struggled to figure out what it looked like to live faithfully in the midst of a world that had been turned upside down. What it looked like to follow Jesus in a world full of political and cultural turmoil. Sound familiar? Augustine of Hippo, he used passages like the one that we just read in Philippians to, to help his world and his church make sense of the confusing time. Augustine was, was born in, in 354 in a Roman colony in, in northern Africa. His mom was Christian, his, his dad was pagan, so as a young child or as a, a youth, he explored all kinds of different faith traditions. He became an academic. He was, he was really smart and then came to faith at the age of 31 through some conversations with some colleagues, with his friends, and some conversations with mentors. He was an established priest by the time that Rome fell. And, and as questions arose around the collapse of what many believed to be the eternal city, he, he painted a picture of two realities. He said that we, we, we find ourselves in the midst of two cities, one that, that doesn't change where Christ is king, and one that is an earthly city, that is ripe with change, that is ripe with instability and a longing for power. And he said, as humans, we live in both cities concurrently at the same time. He argued that we're, we're pilgrims in, in the earthly city because, as Paul writes in Philippians that we just read, our primary citizenship is elsewhere. And he aimed to give Christians in Rome some perspective, to, to limit how much hope they placed in any sort of earthly political system, any sort of empire, or any sort of leader. It, it's a reminder that, that Christians can live faithfully as citizens of heaven in all kinds of political and earthly systems. In the book that some of us are reading on, on Thursday nights here at WPC, Eugene Cho, he echoes some of what Augustine was getting at over 1,500 years ago. And Cho also presents us with a challenge as we aim to exist among those, those two cities, the heavenly kingdom and, and the earthly kingdom all at once. So he, he writes this. The beauty and power of the church are discovered not in the left versus right political spectrum, but in the power of the gospel. 
We, we find our meaning and power in the person of Jesus Christ. Rather than asking about one's politics, we, we should be asking about our understanding, imagination, and embodiment of the beauty and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, the crux of our dilemma is that for some Christians, we've allowed our politics to inform our theology rather than our theology to inform our politics. So do we, do we keep our eyes on God's kingdom as we live and move and engage in today's politics? Do, do we see our politics through the lens of our faith, or do we see our faith through the lens of our politics? What shapes us more? Now, we'll, we'll never fully experience the, the fullness of what God has for us within the confines of that earthly city, city that Augustine mentions. But, but that doesn't mean that we're not called to, to be peacemakers or to love our neighbors in that earthly city. We can and should fully engage in today's politics. And at the same time, those of us who consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus need to remember where our true citizenship lies. Sometimes when we hear Paul's words in Philippians 3.20 about our, our citizenship being in heaven and eagerly awaiting our Savior, we, we default to thinking that, that Paul was referring strictly to the future, that, that he was referring to something that is, is coming. But, but Philippi was a Roman colony. It was this influential town that was a stopping point while people would travel to or from the mother city, to or from Rome. Now, if someone in Philippi said, we're citizens of Rome, they wouldn't have meant, we can't wait to move to Rome. It would have meant, we are Roman citizens today, and we take pride in being Roman citizens and the Roman emperors, they didn't want citizens of their colonies to move to Rome either. That the infrastructure of the city couldn't support it, and the Roman influence would be limited around the world if everybody just moved to one location. It would be reduced drastically. So the task of a Roman citizen living in Philippi was to bring Roman culture to northern Greece. So Paul, he's, he's using this illustration that would have been pretty obvious to Roman citizens living in Philippi. The church is a present colony of the kingdom of heaven. And our task and our responsibility is to represent God's kingdom by loving well and by working for shalom now and today. It's what we pray for every week with the, the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. So when Paul wraps up this illustration, he writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Dear friends, he's describing the church. He's describing the church and its Lord in a way that the Philippians couldn't miss with an allusion to Rome and to Caesar. And he's leaving them with a challenge that is equally challenging for us today. Where does our primary allegiance lie? Or, as Augustine might put it, do we recognize our existence 
in the two cities? Are, are we engaging the difficult conversations in the earthly city while keeping our eye on the city of God? Let's pray. Lord, help us to stand firm in you. Lord, may we be a, a people who engage in today's politics, in the affairs of our cities, in the affairs of our, our country, while ultimately placing our hope in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.